9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from an anarchic jurisdiction, New York City, overrun by wild, well, actually nothing. Nothing is happening here. It's very quiet in New York. Coming to us from Washington, D.C., which is anarchic in a completely different way, we have Mika Oyang of the Third Way. Oh, actually, Mika is not in Washington, D.C., even though I learned 60 seconds ago that she's in San Francisco. Hi, Mika. How are you? Hello. And actually in Washington, D.C., we have uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you, Ed? I'm good. Thank you, David. And in nearby Alexandria, Virginia, which is just across the river from Washington, but actually not in any way at all like Washington. We have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Hi, Rosa. How are you? Hi there, David. And so here we are beginning another week. We're about six weeks from the election in the United States. Um, And, you know, although mostly we talk about national security and what's going on in the rest of the world, um, sometimes the biggest things that are going on in national security have to do with United States, particularly in tumultuous times like these. Rosa, why should anybody anywhere else in the world care that a long-serving United States Supreme Court justice uh, died over the weekend? Uh, well, if you're in other parts of the world, I suppose it depends who you are. If you're, if you are Vladimir Putin, Kim, uh, if you, if you are, if, if, if you are any of the multitude of, uh, non-American leaders who wish us ill, you may be mightily cheered by the, uh, death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg because, it has thrown the U.S. political process into further chaos uh, uh, and division. Um, if you are an ally of the United States, you are you are mightily dismayed by by this because uh, the for those of our listeners who are not in the United States and who don't follow this stuff closely, uh, the, in the structure of the U.S. constitutional system, the Supreme Court ends up being the ultimate decider on all sorts of policy matters ranging from reproductive rights to the proper role of money in politics and campaign finance to actually deciding uh, in in 2000, for instance, deciding that George W. Bush, uh, deciding to stop the recount, thus making George W. Bush rather than Al Gore the winner of the 2000 presidential election. You name the issue, whether it's a civil rights issue, a campaign finance issue, a legislative interpretation issue. In our system, the Supreme Court has enormous power. The The Supreme Court was, uh, prior to the death of Justice Ginsburg, had five justices appointed by, who were conservative justices and, and four justices who are generally viewed as liberal. Not all of them reliably voted along those lines. There were departures, including most recently and most notably several moments where Justice Roberts, the chief justice, sided with the so-called liberals on the court uh, uh, with the death of Justice Ginsburg, 
President Trump has an opportunity, which he may or may not be able to exploit successfully, to nominate another conservative justice to the court who conceivably could be confirmed even prior to the election, something I'm sure we'll talk about that that, that the Democrats staunchly oppose uh, and would be hypocritical for, for a number of reasons that I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss. Uh, if he is able to do that, the court will have a 6-3 conservative majority, which would protect against one or two defections in, in occasional cases. Um, uh, so it's hugely significant for, since, since in the U.S. Supreme Court justices have life tenure, it's hugely significant not only for potential electoral-related litigation in the next few months, but also for the next several decades of American jurisprudence and American law and the status of uh, rights and the balance between federal and state powers and so forth in the United States. So, Mika, what's your take on this? I mean, after all, uh, as Rosa just said, five of the justices are, 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 tend to be more conservative uh, already. And, and, the, and if Trump gets to appoint a judge, then that'll be six. So it'll yeah. still be a majority. Um, as Rosa says, the, the 5-4 majority isn't absolute. There are on occasional issues, um, places where one defection from a Republican-appointed judge can make a difference. And we've seen both Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch voting with the more liberal members. But what Justice Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg's death throws into stark relief is that now all three branches of government are under the control of a party and a point of view that is not representative of the majority of Americans. And this is fundamentally a concern about responsiveness of our democracy to what the people believe. A 6-3 majority in the Supreme Court, if Trump gets to appoint one, and they've appointed some very young judges, means that even if you had other retirements, if the Democrats were to win the White House, changing the majority of the Supreme Court so that it is more responsive to changing times and to what the people believe is fundamentally out of its grasp. And so you have the presidency currently controlled by a man who's elected with less than a majority of the population, the Senate in the hands of a party that has won less than a majority of the population's support because of the way geographically we are divided. Um, and so it's only the House, really, that is reflective of the point of view of the American people and is responsive to democracy, that has tremendous implications for us in terms of the way our government in our democracy responds to the things that we care about. And you see that over and over again in the issues that this Republican Party chooses to put on the table, and they fail to address the things that most of us are very upset about. You see super majorities of support for addressing effectively the pandemic, for reforming police practices, for gun control. You see over and uh, for climate change, you see over and over again, the Republicans failing to address the things that really worry people, that, that endanger the health and safety of Americans across the board. And so you have to really wonder, are we still even living in a democracy? Or, as we've seen indicators of, are we sliding towards an autocracy? Um, and you know, that's kind as, of stark. <laughs> well, it, no, it's not, for us, that's not that dark. Uh, sliding towards an autocracy is nowhere nearly as bad as some of us have described it. Um, and as somebody who came to the United States um, and is familiar, but lived in other places in the world, familiar with other kinds of systems, um, perhaps you shared some of what other 
foreigners that I know have found kind of interesting, which is the surprise that a figure like Ruth Bader Ginsburg could loom so large in the public consciousness. Here is a member of a high court uh, who is a, it was a national icon, um, who little girls dressed up as for Halloween, um, that uh, people have Ruth Bader Ginsburg bobblehead dolls on their desk. Um, how do you how do you explain that to to somebody else, and how do you explain the importance of this woman? Notorious Ginsburg, yeah, my my um, amongst her many fans, my daughter, my thirteen year old daughter is one of them, um, as, as indeed am I. Um, uh, look, it's not like I moved from somewhere else in the world to Ecuador. Um, you know, people people do follow the United States. Um, even those who aren't sort of great scholars of America's constitutional history are aware of FDR's court packing um, notoriety in 1937. They might not be aware of what prompted him, the frustration that prompted him to do that, which was that the Supreme Court kept knocking down key elements of the New Deal. Um, but, you know, they're aware that in the American constitutional setup, the Supreme Court is an extremely important part of the, of the trifecta. Um, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the best way, you know, of explaining her um, is, is uh, um, as, first of all, to explain why she stayed on. You know, um, notwithstanding the fact that she had suffered from more than one type of cancer over many, many periods of years, why it was so important that she didn't stand down in her mind and in the mind of liberals, why it's so tragic that she's died at this moment. And what we've just heard very eloquently put by the other two is precisely why um, she stayed on and wanted to stay on. And people do get that. They remember the 5-4 ruling in Florida in 2000, if you explain to them a very garish scenario, whereby, but not implausible, whereby Trump proposes um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett or Barbara Lagoa, um, and, and she gets nominated before November the 3rd, um, we then have um, some fraught recount situation over mail-in ballots in North Carolina or Wisconsin, and it gets up to the Supreme Court, and it's already 6-3, they can understand immediately through an example like that, however extreme that example might be, just how important this is. Uh, You you don't even need to get into the future of Obamacare um, in that example, but there is another very tangible one um, that, you know, um, non-Americans and obviously Americans alike can understand. Um, I think finally... People do grasp that this election, um, unlike really any since maybe the 1960s, is a culture war election. And that she has, you know, we were all talking about the October surprise. Would it be a vaccine? It probably still will be. Um, Or a clash in the South China Sea, whatever it might be. Well, we've got it already before October's happened. It's Ruth Bader Ginsburg's vacant robes. and people get that that that's really a lightning rod in, in the culture war. Roe v. Wade is the number one target of the conservative evangelical movement. Um, and it's the number one defensive position of liberals in America. They understand what, what's at stake. Rosa, I was talking to somebody at the 
you know, follows these issues, understands them well, um, close to these issues. And they echoed a little bit what Ed, Ed said and, and actually said moments after she died, um, we are in for an epic war. And, um, and I, was, I was struck by that, normally a very circumspect person. Um, what's the nature of this war that we are likely to see? Well, I think, I hope that that was just a metaphor for a legal battle and a political battle. Um, I think at a bare minimum, yes, we're, we're in for an epic political and political battle here. Um, uh, when President Obama uh, was in his last year in office and last vacancy of the Supreme Court, President Obama nominated uh, Merrick Garland to fill a vacant Supreme Court seat. And that nomination was made, I believe, nine months before uh, the presidential election and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stalled it, refused to hold confirmation hearings um, on the grounds that he asserted at the time that we were too close to a presidential election, that the Supreme Court justice should be, the next Supreme Court justice should be determined by a Senate, uh, should be determined by a Senate that, that reflected sort of the latest uh, votes of Americans and nominated by a president who had been selected by a majority of Americans. So he stalled it. Um, the vacancy was then filled by Donald Trump after he, he, he came into office. Obviously, here we're only, what, 44 days before the presidential election. Uh, it would certainly seem that consistency would require the uh, Senator McConnell to say, uh, wow, if nine months was too close to a presidential election to hold confirmation hearings for a Supreme Court justice, um, uh, 45, 44 days before a presidential election is way, way, way too short. Let's wait to see who wins. Let's, if it's President Trump, we'll move forward on his nomination. If it's Vice President Joe Biden who wins the election, then let's let President Biden be the person to nominate someone to fill this vacancy. Um, obviously, Mitch McConnell has had a change of heart uh, uh, since uh, Merrick Garland's nomination. He's now claiming that, of course, he must push through a Trump nomination immediately. Um, it's it's shaping up to be a huge political battle. We've already seen two Republican senators come out and side with the uh, argument that no one should be confirmed until until at least after the presidential election to wait and see how that election comes out. Uh, there's going to be an enormous battle to see whether Mitt Romney and will say the same thing. We've already seen Senator Collins in Maine uh, and Senator Murkowski in Alaska saying that they won't vote. They won't vote to confirm anyone prior to the election. Mitt Romney is the next obvious person. He seems to be thinking about it. Um, there are several other senators who possibly could defect from the Republicans and prevent a uh, confirmation hearing from occurring prior to the presidential election. So there's going to be intense pressure on the tiny, tiny number of Republicans who conceivably could be peeled away from the Republican majority in the Senate. So at a bare minimum, there's going to be a war in that political sense. Um, I think the, you know, the darker fear here, of course, is that in a, in a, after a summer in which we saw episodes of politically motivated violence, mostly in connection with racial justice protests, uh, and we saw increasing activity from right-wing uh, militias and white nationalist groups um, that the tensions relating to this and the, the broader tensions relating to the election uh, could spill over into forms of political violence, which would be, you know, awful. Uh, and I think I think 
that's the that's the real fear. And as 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 you guys know, um, you know, some of the work I've done has attracted the attention of the extremist far right, which has already decided. Uh, you know, their their narrative is that the the Democratic Party. Um, in cahoots with George Soros, in cahoots with the Chinese Communist Party, in cahoots with Black Lives Matter, in cahoots with Antifa, uh, are planning a, a socialist, Marxist, left-wing coup against President Trump and will uh, launch a bloody civil war any second now. That narrative is nuts, needless to say. Um, it is absolutely batshit crazy and false. Um, but it's being used to sort of whip up a, a frenzy among extremist right wingers, uh, and, and you know, and you could see this turning into political violence that is motivated by totally false narratives about insurrection and coup. I think that's that's the fear. Um, I, I hope that that's a fear that is purely paranoid and and does not go anywhere. But I but I do think that uh, folks who monitor sort of early indicators and warning signs of political violence are rightly very, very concerned by the kinds of rhetoric, uh, both the kinds of rhetoric that they're seeing in the US political discourse right now, um, but also by the actual signs of uh, organization on the far right uh, in, in preparation for an alleged democratic violence. The only side that actually seems to be preparing for some sort of conflict is the far right. There's no evidence whatsoever that that is occurring on the left or indeed the far left. But, you know, that's that's the sort of bigger fear. Uh, yeah, Mika, last week, the uh, uh, director of the FBI um, said it's the far right. It's not the far left that's behind it. He also said, by the way, uh, Russia is trying to attack our election and the White House and the administration seems to be arguing against that. But if you were looking at the United States right now from a purely national security perspective, as you do, um, uh, I think a fairly strong argument could be made that the that the the the, the biggest threats are are here at home. Um, people who are trying both to foment violence um, uh, uh, on, on the far right, or people who like those who Rosa uh, has been confronted with who who seek to put in place the, 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 the rationale for attacking the left, uh, even if it's made of whole cloth. Um, and I would go a step further. Um, you know, if you look at the you know, United States right now, one by one, our institutions are being attacked from within, like there was a virus within the institutions. Bill Barr, the attorney general, um, is being accused right now in new books of, you know, quashing investigations into the president, undermining the rule of law. And he's the one who's declared these cities anarchic. The, the, it's, the right is, you know, arguing that the left wants to pack the court, but, but the right has been wholesale packing courts for for decades um, the white house the senate health and human services the department of state the directorate of national intelligence uh the epa the post office the usun all of these institutions have been attacked from within and are less trustworthy and less functional today than they were before are rosa's scenarios 
that go beyond a political war credible in that context? I think, David, we are at the most dangerous moment that we have been in in this country since shortly before the Civil War. Um, and we see the signs here in the U.S. of the coming conflict that we've seen in other places. We've seen increasing rhetoric of victimization, of non-responsiveness, of the kind of language that we've seen um, of demonizing people um, in places like Rwanda and pre-World War II Germany, right, in, in the ways in which we are not able to have conversations um, in a civil way and, and have uh, public trust. We also see that the Republican Party is no longer, uh, under Trump, is no longer committed to principles of democracy, of letting the people decide in, in being responsive to what the people's demands are. And so we are at a very dangerous place. The president himself is creating more um, space and permission for people to engage in extrajudicial violence and extrajudicial uh, means in praising people like Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, we have seen the right, not just Trump, but people on the right in that ecosystem embrace that kind of vigilantism. Um, that is terribly dangerous for us as a nation. I think we are hopeful that this election will result in a change in direction away from this kind of flirtation with autocracy. But one of the things that really has me troubled right now, um, and I'm hosting a conversation about this this coming week, is that um, in terms of people's confidence in the outcome and legitimacy of our elections, a majority of Americans have real questions about whether or not the election outcome is going to be fair. Um, that's 65% of Republicans and 46% of Democrats. So whatever the result is, there are going to be millions of people who believe that the result is not legitimate. And when people believe that the democratic institutions don't deliver results that the people want, then they turn to violence in the streets. So I think that we have a whole situation uh, of, you know, I'm out here in California, of dry tinder that has been building up over decades here. And it doesn't take much of a spark to set the whole thing off. And it, that is really dangerous for Americans. I understand it just takes raking the forest floors and everything will be, will be, will be, will be, will be fine. But you know, so if, if people stop having gender reveal parties, maybe we wouldn't have some of these forest fires, which is what's caused several of them. Yeah. Who even knew that people were having gender reveal parties, but that's perhaps that's a sign of my being out of touch by this. But you know, Ed, when you started talking, you mentioned some people who do not wish the United States well outside of our borders. Um, and what Rosa's talking about and what Mika is talking about is their absolute fantasy. And every day, it seems like the United States government is closer to a major sweeping, not necessarily reversible crisis of, um, of, of, you know, whether it, it can be believed, whether it is, uh, uh, you know, capable entity, um, whether elections are, um, are, are, are real or not. Um, th this, this is rot. Is 
is and and and, the, and it's being fed by foreign disinformation as well as disinformation from the white house as well as you know the department of justice calling seattle portland and, and new york centers of anarchy which is just it's preposterous it's it's ludicrous i'm you know i'm in new york i was on the street earlier today you know people get angry if somebody doesn't poop, scoop up after their dog's poop um you know in other words it's a very orderly society um but there is a crisis of legitimacy that is looming over the united states government how serious do you think that is and do you think it can be um you know, an irreversible crisis? Well, political scientists talk of system legitimacy versus performance legitimacy. Um, so in countries where there is liberal democracy, that is system legitimacy. You might lose, but you have a, um, a, a perfectly re reasonable prospect of winning when you have a, the next bite of the apple with the next election. Performance legitimacy is what the Chinese have to um, have to fulfill. They've got to deliver um, the fruits of growth. They've got to deliver stability. They've got to deliver certain things in the absence of system legitimacy. Um, I don't think that liberal democracy any longer in the eyes of at least significant minorities and in some places majorities has system legitimacy uh, amongst its people. Um, I think that um, it is considered to be um, unfair, rigged, um, and arbitrary, and almost always subject to the interpretation of elites rather than ordinary people um, uh, in their, to their benefit. Um, so I think, you know, we've already got a, a decline in faith and a decline in trust in our political institutions, even before Trump came along. Now, um, as Rosa was discussing, we've got the prospect of a, of a, a general election, a presidential election, where um, the majority of, of people from each party say if the other side won, um, it would be as a result of fraud. Now, I happen to think the democratic um, cynicism here is multiply better grounded than the Republican one. But nevertheless, Trump has been telling his base all year that... Um, that mail-in ballots are fraudulent. And we know very well, political scientists have talked about this. Election observers um, understand the phenomenon of um, the red mirage, that on the day of voting in, in an election where most Democrats are going to vote by mail and most Republicans are going to vote in person, when the in-person count is being conducted on the evening of November 3rd, that Trump, backed up by Bill Barr, will say, um, look, I'm ahead, um, and they should stop counting these ballots. As you know, I've been telling you all year, they're fraudulent. These are Chinese interference, whatever it might be, at which point most of his base will be primed to not just believe him, but to support him. Um, that's as frightening a measure, and it's entirely realistic. In fact, I think it's, it's a probability. Um, that something like that is going to happen. Um, that is uh, as, as disturbing a measure as you can find about whether, whether a system has legitimacy in the eyes of its own people. Um, I think I mentioned to you the other day that um, my wife had to go to Ireland because a relative was dying um, a, 
couple of weeks ago and she went via Frankfurt um, and she had a five hour layover and within those five hours she got a proper full test and the results back. And that's been available for months. That's still not available in the United States. So the larger question of can this system run an election? Can it test people when there's a pandemic on? Can it contact and trace them in terms of infected people's interactions with others in order to perform a basic function of public health or a basic function of counting votes in a democracy? The answer consistently seems to be no. Or if it is yes, it's a very, very partial yes. So the larger question here is also about performance legitimacy. Does the system deliver? And Right now, it's, it's so badly failing to deliver on so many fronts um, that you've got, to, you've got to feel worried about, about which trajectory it's going to continue to go in. Yeah, I think I'd love to hear you pick up on that, Rosa. Uh, I'll just add for a little bit of color here that um, I've noticed as, as we're recording this that a, uh, a new advertisement for... Uh, uh, Georgia uh, Senator Kelly Leffler uh, has just appeared, uh, in which she brags in the ad about being more conservative than Attila the Hun, <laughs> and 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 Attila the Hun actually appears in the ad. I'm not sure I would have um, described Attila the Hun as a classic conservative. <laughs> well, you know that's an interesting question. You can comment on that. Apparently, in the ad, Attila the Hun. Um, uh, grunts out orders uh, to, 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 among other things, eliminate the liberal scribes. Um, and the president of the United States stood up this weekend and said, described a journalist being shot by the police with a rubber bullet as being a beautiful scene of law and order. Um, you know, it seems to me that it's not just that there's a crisis of legitimacy, but you know, up and down the line, the, the GOP leadership is embracing this. This is the ultimate fulfillment of that Reagan-esque idea that you know, government is bad. Let's get rid of it all. Let's burn it down. It's that Steve Bannon idea. Yeah. Um, no, so, I mean, Attila the Hun is, is, of course, most famous for the rather large number of people he slaughtered and the very large number of women he raped. So it's a little hard to understand why anyone would view him as a conservative exemplar. Uh, I suppose if your goal is, is mayhem, is the imposition of mayhem and misery upon a population, then he's an excellent model. But um, Well, if, I, you have a, if you're <laughs> looking for a leader with a lot of blood on his hands who's a serial sex abuser, yeah, um, that that comes pretty close to home for the Republican Party. <laughs> I mean, I mean, no, I, I think that's right. I think I think one of the most shocking things that has happened uh, over the course of the last few years, but really has accelerated very rapidly just in, in the last year, indeed, even in the last six months, um, has been sort of the brazenness which with uh, GOP elected officials um, have embraced more and more extremist positions. You know, we used to refer to dog whistles about racism, 
Uh, increasingly, there's nothing, but dog whistle implies something that is, you know, below the level of audible that is subtle uh, and implicit rather than explicit. And increasingly, in terms of, you know, Trump's own comments, uh, I can't remember the exact words of his comment recently in Minnesota, uh, but he congratulated the Minnesotans on their on their good genes and suggested that the uh, entry of Somali immigrants was diluting those good genes. You know, the, the, the racism is not implicit anymore. It's, it's right out there in the open. Um, and the hostility to political opponents is not implicit. You know, the sort of personal level of hostility that is sort of, I hope you are destroyed level of hostility rather than I hope our arguments prevail is right out in the open. The hostility to a free press is right out there in the open. The conspiracy theories that are not grounded in fact, that have no, in which there is absolutely zero willingness to uh, adhere to sort of the most, even the pretense that they care about truth, um, is right out in the open now. And, and that's kind of shocking, right? I mean, that, that's, I don't, I don't, obviously none of us, uh, except, except you, David, lived through the 1950s and the McCarthy era. Um, um, but sorry, I couldn't resist because David Sanger wasn't here to make a mean joke about your age. Um, no, we know that you were, we know that you were not, uh, in fact, um, an adult in the, in the McCarthy era. Um, but, you know, obviously none of or, us are alive. alive. But or alive. Keep going, <laughs> Or indeed alive um, during the McCarthy era. Um, but, you know, so I don't know how this political moment compares to that. That's the closest in recent political memory and sort of the lived political memory of, of Americans alive today that I can, that comes to mind as a possible parallel here. You know, a moment when lives were being cynically destroyed by people who had no allegiance whatsoever to truth and were happy to purvey sort of open open conspiracy theories with no backing in reality to destroy lives and political careers. Um, I don't know whether today is similar or or better or worse, um, but it's certainly it is certainly shocking that sort of the I, I'm not a big fan of arguments that there should be quote unquote civility um, because I think civility is often a way of telling people, don't bring up difficult issues, don't challenge, don't don't challenge me. Um, but I do think that whatever sort of basic norm that says you don't knowingly tell outrageous lies uh, and you don't knowingly aspire to destroy longstanding American institutions and publicly acknowledge that your goal is to destroy and discredit them and lie about them, those, it does, it does make me feel slight, slight longing for the, the good old days, say in, you know, 2000 or even 2008. I mean, wait a moment. Well, okay. I, I don't even want to say this. Dick Cheney's starting to look like a, you know, a master statesman. Uh, and when George W. Bush and Dick Cheney start looking like uh, uh, statesmen uh, and, and I miss them, things are really, really, really bad because they were horrifically awful. Yeah, no, they were horrifically awful. And if you were an Iraqi, you would not be saying that because, you know, when Cheney and <laughs> and Cheney and Bush went off the tracks, they their policies killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. Now 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 Trumps have killed hundreds of thousands of 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 Americans. But you know, it gets to the core of this issue um, uh, uh, about legitimacy. Um, you know, Mika, one of the things that strikes me is I mean, you you do national security programs at Third Way. 
um, you know, I was in the Clinton administration. In some ways, those of us who did international issues uh, during that that period uh, embraced the idea of third way, in part because there was this tradition in foreign policy of trying to set the politics aside. There was something a little bit more virtuous about trying to be at the middle because you thought that was kind of where U.S. national interests would reside. Um, one of the things that has been most shocking to me, and it's just a subset of all of this, has been the degree to which national security officials have tossed aside norms and embraced, um, uh, you know, the kind of scorched earth politics of the hard right. Um, uh, and and there, there, there are many, many ways, you know, Richard Grinnell, when he was DNI or Ratcliffe at, as, at DNI, suppressing information, uh, 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 O'Neill as the director, as, as the, the national security advisor, um, uh, minimizing a Russian threat, playing up a Chinese threat. He warned Trump about this, this health crisis. Uh, but later defends Trump's behavior, even though he knows uh, that 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 he is lying. Um, you know, the the Justice Department working with talking to the military about using heat waves against protesters, and you know, sending in armed little green men, a la the Russians, into into cities. Um, the, the the national security side has fallen into. I mean. Um, Mike Pompeo, you know, is, is, is going off to give a big national security speech, uh, to a state legislature this week, be- not because it has anything to do with national security, but because he's, he's politicking, you know, the United States is, you know, ta- you know, is calling for new sanctions on, on, on Iran, not because they can get them, because they know that the rest of the world is not going to go along with it. But purely for the political posturing, I just was interested in your thoughts yeah. on this: the crisis of legitimacy within the national security establishment. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I see it in sort of two ways. One is that I have found that that old consensus that I think was born out of the idea that America's foreign policy is America's foreign policy, regardless of who's president. When America gives its word to another country, the future presidents will honor the promises of their predecessors, regardless of party, uh, because there's something bigger about the national interest, that consensus still exists in the national security community. It's just not people who are willing to serve this president. You see in the national security professionals who, Republican national security professionals who are lining up behind Biden, a real consensus. I have never found as much common ground with my Republican, uh, former Republican colleagues as I do now about what is actually at stake in this country. And one of the things that I think is really striking about the, the national security officials who've gone in to serve in this administration is how deep the Trump administration had to dig to find people that they could put into these jobs. I mean, Pompeo was a middle tier House member and became the director of the CIA and then secretary of state. That wouldn't have happened in in either of the Bush presidencies. All the statesmen who had the experience, who understood diplomacy, who'd worked with other countries, took a pass at this. I mean, they were finding initially in the Trump administration an oil executive who had no foreign policy experience to take that job. And the people who had been institutionalists 
journalists, the people who we all were very concerned about because they were retired, recently retired generals who took over those positions, largely they were pushed out of this administration when they kept trying to hew to that national security consensus. And you see that they are they are finding partisans with little experience and little knowledge of how the national security apparatus works to take over these jobs. And they are making really incompetent mistakes. This, you know, attempts to like engage in or maybe fund a coup in Venezuela, some of the the, the mistakes that they're making with North Korea. I mean, they are they are people who just don't know what they are doing. And thank goodness that we haven't seen a national security crisis um, at the end of this Trump administration, but there's still plenty of time. I mean, in 2016, it wasn't until October 17th that the Access Hollywood tape leaked, and it wasn't until October 28th that Comey announced that he was relooking at Hillary Clinton's email. So we still have plenty of time left for some other crisis to arise in this election cycle. Um, And let's just hope it's not a national security one because the people that they have are not even the B team. They are like the people who couldn't even put on a shirt and ride the bench. Yeah, totally agree with you, except I would argue that the COVID crisis was a national security crisis. Um, And I'm I'm sure you weren't overlooking that, but, but because it was a global pandemic, I think it falls into that ambit. And in prior administration, it would have been the responsibility of senior national security officials to deal with it. They, these guys were not really organized to do that. Um, one, one other place of, of, of the collapse of institutional legitimacy is clearly uh, the Department of Justice, and uh, in part because Barr has revealed himself to be an extremist, or in the case of declaring cities an anarchic, uh, you know, kind of a a perverse clown. Uh, Barr was the one, you know, who was pushing to use heat rays against people during peaceful protests. But, you know, another sort of sub-narrative has emerged. We've been doing interviews on the podcast with people who are writing the big books. We did Mike Schmidt last week. We had Peter Strzok last week. We'll have help Andrew uh, Weissman sometime soon, you know, Mary Trump, others. One of the things that we talked about a lot on this podcast was, you know, Robert Mueller was going to be this independent guy. He was represented these institutions and he was going to save our ass because he was going to run a sensible, uh, objective investigation. And even when it was clear he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing or he was downplaying it, our tendency was to say, but he's an upstanding guy and, and he's going to save our butts in the end. And, and, and now we have a book, the Weissman book, come, come out from close aid to him and, and the Strzok book and these other books come out. No, it failed. He failed. He didn't look where he was supposed to look. He didn't push where he was supposed to push. He didn't stand up for the American people in the way that he was supposed to stand up for the American people. There was no independent investigation into any of this. There was no aggressive prosecution where there should have been a prosecution and protection 
Because after all, remember, this was a national security breach that we were dealing with. There was no counterintel investigation. There was no finance investigation into the finances. This seems kind of extraordinary to me. You know, I've talked about this several times on the podcast in the past few years. The, 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 the Woodward book has the former director of national intelligence, a Republican congressman from Indiana, saying Putin has something on Trump. And that, that's like, you know, I've said it before. It's like story number 37. Nobody, you know, this, this is the most fundamental area of both, you know, of, of all kinds of crises of legitimacy. And I'm wondering, you know, what you make of the collective narrative of all these books that are now coming out. Um, the Weissman book, from what I read about it, I haven't read the actual book, is probably the most authoritative in terms of why Mueller let us down. Um, you know, we've heard a, a lot of um, reporting about Mueller, none directly from him. He hasn't spoken to anybody. Um, and clearly he buckled. But the testimony that Mueller gave um, a few weeks after Barr had skinned him alive by, by taking this report and, and re- releasing his completely contorted summons of it, it was very clear that this was a man who, oddly, for somebody who got purple hearts and somebody who stood up to the mafia, had buckled, had lost his spine. And the Weissman book is really interesting because it, um, you know, it, it expresses his um, stupefaction at why Mueller ducked these challenges and why he refused to uh, subpoena Trump to, to testify, um, at why he wouldn't call um, uh, the obstruction of justices, um, uh, wouldn't call those balls and strikes as, as he saw them and as his team saw them, and, and why he was so reluctant to talk about collusion um, as having been um, proven. Uh, it's just uh, it's just a very sad tale because if Mueller had been the Mueller we thought he was going to be, and I was no no exception, I was pinning a lot of hopes on his integrity and his um, uh, courage. Um, that if he if he'd actually been the person we hoped he was going to be, things could have turned out quite differently a lot earlier. As it is, we now get a lot of these books. Um, that we inside the Beltway devour. Um, but I think everyone else is inured to the whole Russia story and, and inured to the, the Trump corruption angle and that it's not really playing much of a role in this general election. I think this is one for the historians. It's an incredibly important one for the historians. Um, and we, I think, uh, we ought to be a little bit wiser. We've got, we've got to look to many people and not one hero. We, we looked at Mueller as the hero. We then looked at Jim Mattis as the hero. We briefly even looked at John Roberts during the impeachment trial as a potential hero. And perhaps we're going to look to John Roberts again as a potential hero. We should learn from our mistakes, not to pin hopes onto one Hollywood kind of hero. Um, we, we, we need collective groups of people to change things. Yeah. I wish we could go on with this conversation, but I think that that point brings us in some um, poignant way back to where we started, because uh, it's very, very hard um, in a place like Washington to stand up against 
the prevailing opinion among your friends, within your party, within institutions. It's very, very hard to buck the tide, even when the tide is extremely negative. Um, and the way we get heroes is when we find people who do that, um, not just once, but uh, week in and week out and year in and year out against enormous odds throughout their lives. Uh, and I think that in the end is why Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a hero and why she will be so deeply missed. Um, you know, you think about American democracy um, and without waxing poetic, it has never been or for it, if, if it has been, it has been for brief moments. Um, a, a system of majority rule. And for the first um, uh, 150 years of American history, the majority population didn't even have a voice. And until Ruth Bader Ginsburg began to help change the law in the 1970s, the majority population did not have equal protection under the law. And certainly Black populations and other populations of color uh, did not have a voice, and the poor have not had a voice in a system in which disproportionate power is given uh, to those who write the checks. And so I think that's why the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, despite her diminutive stature, leaves such a giant hole um, in our system, uh, because the legitimacy um, uh, ultimately comes from the performance of individuals, and she was a truly uh, extraordinary woman who, despite all the hype that's whirled around her, uh, was actually greater than all of that hype. So she will be missed. Uh, we will continue this conversation in weeks to come uh, as we get closer and closer to this election. Uh, I hope uh, and trust that we will continue it with Rosa and with Ed and with Mika and with our other regular guests uh, and with all of you. So please join us again. We have some a uh, special broadcast this week, next week, each week coming up through the election. We will have special uh, podcasts. Uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com to find out about those. And, you know, this is a good time to become a member. I know you're giving to all of the political causes that you care about. Uh, the, the causes that keep the issues in the public eye also matter. And so you have the opportunity to support us by, by becoming a member uh, click on membership and do that. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Mika. Um, thank you, Ed. Uh, thank you, Rosa. Uh, oh, by the way, congratulations, Rosa. I really enjoyed seeing your book cover on Twitter. Um, that's a big moment when you have a book cover, and it's a very handsome book cover. Oh, yes, indeed. And that's what uh, matters, because you can judge a book by its cover. Well, most people do. Most <laughs> of the people who own your book will just judge it by its cover, if, I, if it's anything like my book. Um, in any event, uh, I hope that's not the case, of course. Uh, go order Rose's book, pre-order it uh, uh, at your favorite bookseller, and uh, join us again for the next episode, uh, which will be very, very soon. Bye-bye, and stay healthy. <laughs>